0: Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series,
1: brought to you by Stanford eCorner.
2: Welcome Stanford students and our global audience uh, to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders Series. I'm Luke Sikora, Head of Content at STBP uh, and ETL is presented by STBP, the Entrepreneurship Center in Stanford's School of Engineering and BASE's, the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. Today, we are really thrilled to welcome Juliet Anama and Darius Teeter to ETL. Um, Juliet is the chairwoman of Jumia Nigeria and chief sustainability officer of Jumia Group, uh, which is the largest e-commerce platform in Africa and was the first African tech startup to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, She oversees institutional relationships, corporate communication and ESG as well um, for Jumia across 11 countries in Africa. She previously served as the CEO of Jumia Nigeria for more than four years, uh, overseeing growth and transition of Jumi Nigeria from online retail uh, into a full digital ecosystem that includes marketplace and logistics and payment services as well. And I'm sure we'll be hearing about some of that uh, shortly. Today's detail is also a collaboration between STVP and Stanford SEED, which is an initiative uh, within Stanford's Graduate School of Business that partners with entrepreneurs in emerging markets, to build thriving enterprises that transform lives. Um, And we're very happy to have uh, Stanford Seed Executive Director Darius Teeter here to host this conversation uh, with Juliet. Before joining Stanford Seed, Darius served as vice president of global programs for Oxfam America. He has a BA in history from Yale and a master in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, And if you're inspired by this conversation and want to learn more about the entrepreneurial climate uh, in Africa, really encourage you to check out his podcast. It's called Grit and Growth. It tells the stories of entrepreneurs in Africa and South Asia and also connects those stories Uh, to relevant perspectives and and strategy insights from Stanford GSB faculty. And uh, we'll pop a link to that podcast in the YouTube live chat. Uh, Welcome, uh, Juliette and Darius. And with that, I will turn the session over to Darius. Uh, Thanks
1: Thanks, so much, Luke. Luke. Welcome, uh, Juliette. So I have a bunch of questions. We'll try to do what we can do, but I also wanna give students and and other uh, um, participants a chance to ask theirs as well. But I wanted to kick it off. Luke gave a very brief introduction to Jumia. But for those of us who don't know much about it, can you tell us just a little more? What are the problems that Jumia is trying to solve?
0: Yeah, thanks, Darius. So uh, Jumia is um, an e-commerce platform, the largest e-commerce platform in, in Africa. And we started in 2012. And we started with a mission, very simple mission that, you know, we could improve lives with the power of the internet on, on the continent. And uh, we are based in about 11 countries. And the 11 countries where we're based in actually cover 70% of Africa's GDP and about 500, over 500 million internet users. So the question is, like you said, what, what's the problem we're trying to solve? If you're a seller in Africa uh, many years ago, Um, You only had two options on how you're going to retail your products to consumers. Either you had to pay a very expensive high street real estate prices for a modern retail shop, or you had no other alternative but to operate in the open open market. Very informal open market is hot. It has no amenities or utilities and it's overcrowded. Those were the only options you had, especially if you were a small, medium enterprise just uh, trying to get by. So Jumia solves that problem for a host of millions of, of SMEs and sellers and merchants on the continent because you don't have to register on Jumia platform. Uh, you don't have upfront capital expenditure in terms of putting up retail space. Uh, literally minutes once you're registered and gone through the training for selling online on Jumia, you can start your business so that's a huge part of the problem. The second part of the problem, of course, was a logistics problem. So the first one was a distribution problem, and even just staying on the distribution one, if you were a consumer, by the time you finally buy the product, chances are that the markups from the very long distribution chain—from manufacturer to bulk breaker to wholesaler and finally to retailer—and the neighborhood shop where you buy the item, you'll could be paying significantly more than you should as, as a consumer. So one was a distribution problem, from the consumer's perspective and from a seller's perspective. So we're bringing millions of consumers to interact and transact with with the, with sellers directly, with no intermediaries or any other agent agents in between. The second part of it is the logistics part of it. Um, you know, we're also solving a logistics problem by integrating multiple logistics partners into one single integrated logistics, uh, what we call, a, a, you know, it used to be called in my old Accenture days as a 4PL. But what it is, is that you're using technology to integrate different asset owners, and then using Jumia's technology to also be the, you know, manage the data and how they, how they operate. So those so are if the I can, can main... I ask a
1: quick question about that? You're yeah, so sure, So Jumia doesn't, Jumia doesn't own the logistics supply chain, but it has a platform that allows you to get the right players in there when, when you need them, where you
0: need them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's an asset light model and, um, and where a lot of the investment that is required, because you have people who have the assets, you have people who have tricycles and vans and so on. But what was lacking was always the technology to integrate that together. And to, to use the data to make, you know, quality decisions of, you know, where do you deliver, what timeline is it you know, required and so on and so forth. Yeah.
1: And what about payments? I mean, I'm really curious because I love the, I love this transformation. I want to get back to the transformation that for the informal sector that's implied in everything you just said,
0: but yeah. what about payments? Exactly. So payments was another uh, uh, part of it. Because um, I still remember about 2015, just not too long ago, if a consumer made a a purchase on Jumia and we relied on just uh, the, you know, payment through a card, a debit card, a credit card, and had to clear on the back end with a bank. Sometimes if there was a return, it could take but two weeks because of course, the you know the banks at the time, e-commerce was not really something that they were really focused on. So we had to develop our own payment system again, using the same principle of integrating different payment methods that a consumer could have into a seamless uh, uh, platform that will allow us to, you know, clear whether it was credit card or debit card or mobile money or bank transfer, whatever payment method that the consumer had, we could also integrate it on that network. So that's the third component, and that's why those are the three parts of our of our ecosystem.
1: Yeah, I'm Kim, so let's. I want to dig down a little bit more into the payments piece. I'm going straight into the weeds because yeah, that's where no. I love to be. But. um Are you using third-party payment providers? I mean, there's so many startups now in this space, fintech space in Nigeria. There's a lot of venture capital flowing in. You know, there's Lydia, Pay Hippo. There's just a good, I mean, I've lost track of how many of them are. Are you doing your own thing or you're working with all of these third-party providers? We're
0: we're working with, we're we're agnostic. So we're working with all, all third parties. Yeah. And especially given how large the market is, the, mm-hmm. the real value you bring to consumers is not limiting them to your own solution; is actually giving them a platform through which they could they could use whatever payment method methodology that they have. Yeah,
1: that's an, it's actually <laughs> substantially more sophisticated than what it's like here in the United States. I'm always mm-hmm. struck by that. Like people are so excited that they can buy their Starbucks coffee with their phone, and people were doing that in the Philippines nine years ago, ten years ago. So yeah, I, I feel like we're catching up. Uh, because of the dominance of credit card companies. So tell me a little bit about what is the, you know, using data, what is the transformation you're seeing in the informal sector, thanks to platforms like like Jumia's?
0: It's huge. Um, I mean, because look at it. You look at the number of sellers on, on in Africa who are small, uh, medium enterprises in the informal market uh, and then when they get onto Jumia, look at the, the kinds of information that is available to them. Suddenly they know, for example, what which ones of their items are the fastest moving, which at what price points, which particular color. If you are in fashion, if you're a fashion seller on Jumia, you suddenly know whether it's the blue shirt or the red shirt that actually sells better than than the other SKUs that you have. That's very powerful information. Uh, they get information in terms of even the Placement of the products, uh, the inform- the product uh, uh, information which they put up on site, uh, they get information on their seller score and all that. So really formalizing uh, informal um, trade is what it is a huge, huge benefit that e commerce, uh, you know, an e commerce platform like Jumia is bringing to to the to the sellers in in Africa. So that's a that's a huge this is a huge part. That's a really big transition from. From where they were before.
1: Yeah. So that, I love that. That's the data analytics piece, which is some, for some of them, I think probably data they've never had or they had intuitively or they had it on pen, you know, paper and pen. Yeah. Can you tell how many of your um, sellers are, are new sellers? I mean, in other words, that they would not be in a, mar- in a marketplace if it wasn't online?
0: Oh, yes. There, we, we ran a survey recently. Uh, And I I might be able to share some of that information just in ranges. Um, And we have sellers, you know, in in between 30% to 40% of our sellers who say, look, you know, they started their business exclusively on Jumia, right? And some of them, some sellers start their businesses on Jumia. Some sellers came to Jumia to expand their businesses. But what I actually find extremely interesting is, the number of women sellers that we have on Jumia. So we have, at least in Nigeria and Kenya, which are key markets, about 51% of our sellers are actually women. And why do women find it attractive? It's a gender agnostic environment. I mean, uh, you you could be a fashion seller, you could be an electronic seller, and you you don't have a, it's not a physical market where someone can make those kinds of gender-related decisions, or whether I want mm-hmm. to buy an electronic product from a from a woman or not, so that is giving them, you know, uh, access uh, to different categories that they could perform in. Two, it is also giving women flexibility to be able to manage their homes and at the same time run a business of their own. Then, third component that women say they really appreciate. Uh, selling on Jumia, it's um, it's the training. It's the training. It's training on digital, uh, digital marketing. Training on how to sell online. Training on even how to read your account statements. Just those basic kinds of training. You know, the it, the importance for an SME just cannot be overemphasized. Over
1: yeah, oh, I I love that point. You know, we in in Sanford Seed, we're always trying to get more women CEOs into our program. And we do commissioned a study to look at what are some of the barriers to entry for women entrepreneurs across the African continent. And you just hit a bunch of them. Access to capital. Like if you wanna open a storefront, you're, it's gonna be super hard to find that $50,000 mm-hmm. or $100,000 loan. The second is access to networks. Yeah, Women traditionally, in not just in Africa, but across the world, have trouble accessing networks. And then the third is access to technology. And I include mm-hmm. training under technology, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. is the most basic technology. Yeah. You're not getting the same opportunity. So those are really powerful, uh, powerful elements of the platform. Yeah. That's, that's mm-hmm. exciting.
0: And um, there's a fourth yeah. element to it, actually. And that's access to, because uh, you talked about some of the fintech providers of, of um, financial services. So uh, through Jumia, because we have Jumia Lending. Uh, we are also able to connect a lot of uh, sellers to, to um, loan opportunities, uh, you know, to finance their working capital. So there say, are say, say
1: a bit more about that. What is Jumia Lending?
0: So Jumia Lending connects um, sellers on our platform, leveraging their transaction uh, data, transaction mm-hmm. history, to then uh, find uh, working capital loans through other financial services providers who, um, who who are partners to Jumia. So we don't lend off our balance sheet. Mm-hmm. We do the connection um, through um, to financial services providers.
1: It, it makes total sense to me because in, in interviewing a number of fintech CEOs for my podcast, you know, they're all using algorithms and machine learning to mm-hmm. as alternative sources of data for assessing creditworthiness. And mm-hmm. the number one thing they use for little like working capital loans for trading companies and retailers is what's your repayment history? And yeah. it's not coming from banks because banks aren't doing $500 loans, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and, and, but the other one would be what's your revenue history, right? So if you can show that from Jumia, hey, I'm, you know, this is my, this exactly. is my monthly revenue. Yeah. That's hugely valuable to those fintech algorithms because uh, yeah. that's the data they need. That's interesting. Um, there's a great question here. I'm going to just, instead of doing the 45 minutes and then questions, I just want to jump on, in on this one because this is actually a direction I wanted to go. Yeah. The question is, how does Jumia evaluate markets for potential entry, and do you ever decide markets are no longer viable? And they, the 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 person who's asking this question mentions that Jumia pulled out of Cameroon. Yeah, I want to tack on my own question to that. You mentioned you're in 11 countries, 500 million people, and accounting for some enormous percentage of the total GDP on the continent. Can you can you go to this question and talk a little bit about the barriers to? Uh, regional expansion and what you look for when you pick a new country to enter.
0: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and that the question the, the questioner was actually right. Yeah, we had to pull out of Cameroon. Remember, there was a time when Cameroon the internet was shut down for almost a whole year. Okay. Mm-hmm. So these are very important uh factors that we look at. We look at the the you know this the state of the economy, uh we look at Beyond GDP, beyond uh, economic factors, we're also looking at readiness for an internet-based business like ours. So those are very important nuances that, that we consider in terms of uh, looking at ex- expansion. Uh, for now, we're, we're deepening our footprints within the countries that we are in, um, mm-hmm. pos- maybe in the future, but def- certainly for this year, we're, we're really concentrating on on the, those 11 countries where we're currently in.
1: Is uh, is your phrase readiness, is that code for regulatory environment?
0: Um, it could be regulatory. So for example, in some cases you find that uh, readiness, of course, internet access, reliability of internet access are very important uh, factors. Mm-hmm. A cost of data for consumers is also very important. Now, to the extent that those are determined by regulatory factors,
2: mm-hmm. then
0: that that's where the link is, right? Um, so, those are just examples there.
1: Is there an issue around business licenses for, I mean, I can't tell you, I worked in the development sector, how many projects I saw that, you know, where the title was formalizing the informal sector. And I'm, I'm always thinking that's a terrible idea if it means, you know, <laughs> you know, chasing people around for unpredictable taxes, you know, but what is, is that an issue too by business no. registration and licensing? No.
0: To a large extent, no, except for areas that are f- Quite regulatory in any market, which is really when it comes to financial services. Yeah, yeah. but otherwise, um, it hasn't been from just the business registration perspective. We find that a lot of governments in Africa are actually quite supportive, yeah. mm-hmm. and 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 bearing in mind post COVID, also they realize the importance of um, of a dig- digital platforms, and a lot of governments are uh, you know quite supportive and um, doing as much as they can to make sure that. Companies like us are, are operating well.
1: Let's talk about COVID for a second. How important uh, was COVID and the lockdowns A determining factor in the growth of e-commerce? Is it just a, a blip in an otherwise rapidly growing bow wave or or was it determinative in your growth?
0: I think it was a blip in, in, in Africa. Um, I mean, look at it in the U.S. here, The the... The U.S. government more or less bankrolled retail during COVID, right? So, put money in people's accounts, and you're sitting at home. What are you going to do? You're going to have, you have to spend the money online, right? So, uh, the Fed bankrolled <laughs> retail during the pandemic. Um, you don't have that equivalent in um, in in other areas like Africa. Uh, And in some cases, we we had intermittent uh, lockdowns and movement restrictions. So it wasn't such a big factor um, in terms of of, uh, growth of of e-commerce. Rather, e-commerce had had been on a trajectory, uh, given the fact that you have, like I said, you have over 500 million internet users. Africa is also a mobile-first environment, right? So it's almost like Africans have been hungry to do more with their mobile phones. Uh, And e-commerce just happened to be one of those areas. If there's any area where I think there was a lot more awareness uh, during COVID about the potential of e-commerce, it's in the public uh, policy and public agency uh, environment where they suddenly realized that uh, this is something that uh, can actually be leveraged in, in a situation like a, a pandemic and, um, and has great potential for jobs and great potentials for economic development as well.
1: Well, I wanna use that as a segue to, to, to learn a little bit more about you. So you were um, CEO of Jumia Nigeria for four years, uh, coming from a decade as the director at, for Accenture in Nigeria, um, that's a big shift. What, mm-hmm. what, what inspired you to make that move? What, what was the, what did you see on the horizon?
0: Several things. Um, I mean, I'd been, like you said, I'd been in, in, um, in consumer goods, had been uh, in Accenture. I was a partner for consumer goods responsible for all our clients in, in West Africa region. When I joined Jumia, uh, I was a CEO for four, four years and, 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 and some months. So, As far as the market environment was concerned, I had enough experience in that area, understood everything about distribution, route to market, supply chain, consumers, and and so on and so forth. But here was the non-market environment and with with great potential to impact the trajectory of any industry. I mean, one policy, look at what happened with the Uh, data protection and how it impacted a lot of uh, big tech companies and and so on. So I realized how important it was that um, we we developed a a structured approach in which we could engage with policymakers so that they understood uh, the value and the potential of of e-commerce and the digital economy and could work with us in shaping the policy environment for it, you know, to nurture it, to grow. So that's why I decided this was a very important area for me to look at. And the more I looked at it, then of course I also saw all the opportunities in sustainability and mm-hmm. and um, yeah. And, I and, want to uh,
1: I definitely want to drill down on the <laughs> sustainability issues and your in your new role as chairwoman for Jumia and chief sustainability officer. So but but I want to since you brought up regulation again, I want to just take one quick detour there. Yeah. And in speaking with a lot of uh, you know, tech-enabled companies, FinTech, MedTech, HealthTech, the, the common complaint is that, not so much a complaint, but the observation is that we recognize that there's a role for regulation to protect consumers. The problem is when the regulatory authorities are not uh, at the cutting edge of what's happening. So the regulations themselves, you know, even if they come from a place of good intention, they may actually be a, a hindrance or a barrier to growth. And yeah. so what's needed is a dialogue. And so my question to you is, is there a group of companies and people like yourself who are collaborating to work with regulators to say, let's get this right together?
0: Yeah, definitely. So just on the, on the context, people say that, that you know, regulators, that they're not on the same plane, but it's our responsibility as private sector to educate, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of my work uh, in the past year, and, and so has been that education, providing information to say, look, this is, this is what we're doing. Uh, mm-hmm. To a large extent, we've actually spent more time just explaining this is what we're doing. This is this is what a marketplace model looks like. These are the responsibilities of the platform versus the seller, you know, versus the consumer and all that. So I think it's our responsibility as private sector to do it, and that's what we've been doing, Okay. Uh, in a, in other in some of our markets also we've we've formed coalitions with like-minded private sector companies in Nigeria. We have um, uh, the e-commerce um, group within the Lagos Chamber of Commerce. I am actually mm-hmm. the, the the first chairwoman of of that of that council. In Kenya, we have a private sector alliance. And uh, we have an e-commerce sector uh, within the alliance. So all of those are opportunities to engage with with regulators. And and it's always to the interest of private sector to engage early. That way you can provide the necessary information and education and dialogue because they want to do the right thing. They just want to be. Well informed in in taking the right decision. Sometimes you provide parallels from other markets. You can show right. what's going on in the U.S. or China, and right. um, you know how the African environment is different, and and you make your your recommendations. And they listen. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think in some pl- in some sense, because you have first movers' advantage. I think in some for some fintech operators in some countries. Their problem is that the banks are are actually in front of them trying to advocate for restrictive policies because the banks are worried about being disrupted. So, yeah. in their they have a lot more leverage, right? And they've been around yeah. longer. So, yeah. but I think that's probably less of a problem in e-commerce. Um, I want to I want to now pivot to sustainability. We've had a couple of questions in the in the Q and A about sustainability. You are responsible for sustainability for the group. What does that mean for Jumia? What are, and what are some of the key initiatives that you're focused on or the organization is focused on in the sustainability space?
0: I mean, the first thing for us is actually a very clear validation that our mission itself is sustainable. Okay, so we, we don't have to re- invent some new projects uh, to go after. I mean, it doesn't mean, of course, we would have to operate in a sustainable manner, reducing uh, in terms of our shipments, reducing uh, use of packaging materials and all that. So all of those are very important hygiene factors which we, we build into our day-to-day operation. But just realizing that our mission, which is about, uh, in the end, when you look at it, is about reducing inequality is so critical and is a big part of how we create value and how we create sustainable uh, improvement and quality of lives on on the continent. And asking ourselves, what what more can we do uh, with that mission? And second part of it is that we have a full ecosystem of many partners that working together can actually create more value for the communities that uh, that we, we live in than just Jumia itself. We have sellers, we have third party logistics partners, we have brands who work with us. So that's a full ecosystem that if we deploy, um, can actually do a lot more for sustainability. So that's that's our our focus and that's our, 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 our area of um, of attention for this first year. I mean, this is the first year that we're actually you know, you know putting together, practices, what we're doing, and we would have a report, uh, our first report next year.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, those are strong and admirable principles, but for our audience, help me make it concrete. Is this about carbon footprint? Is it about, I mean, what are, like, do you have KPIs in the sustainability space? I, you know, and you can push back because you just said it's year one. So, you know, I get it. We're just getting started here, but yeah. help me, help me, help me make it practical. Help me make it real.
0: Yeah, a very practical example is how many sellers on Jumia are classified as SMEs. How many sellers on Jumia have been able to get access to working capital loans to grow their businesses? How many sellers on Jumia are women? How many of them have utilized the training uh, facilities that we provide? How many of them have utilized the uh, you know loans to be able to grow their businesses? Those are huge, huge um, uh, areas of sustainability that we we haven't even scratched all of it, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, and for us, that those let's let's utilize what we have first, uh, and then uh, there are other levers at which which we can also concentrate on. So those are some examples for you there. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Um, I had another question here about you know, the complexity of working with so many third parties for logistics and payments. And the question is, you know, and at what point does Jamia decide we should build this in-house versus we should partner? And is that is that conversation ongoing or is, I mean, maybe that's a trade secret, but I'm just curious to know.
0: You have to be comfortable with complexity if you're gonna work in Africa, okay? <laughs> we love complexity. And, uh, and we, we enjoy taking complexity and making it simple. So like I said earlier, the problem is not assets, right? The problem is not people who have warehouses and hubs. All of that exists. You have people who have warehouses. We have people who have hubs. We have people who have uh, 10 trucks or some people who have five tricycles. We have all of those assets that exist. So replicating on the asset side
1: it's not like That yeah, makes no sense. That, no.
0: Yeah, it's not, it's not creating value. The real asset that then drives e-commerce is, is the engine, which is really the technology. Okay, so how do you know um, which day of the week uh, you can make certain deliveries? What is the speed of delivery? And how, do you, how, how should you do your routing so that you're more f- fuel efficient? You also reduce distance traveled. All of those are relevant information you cannot get through just owning the assets. You get that through owning the technology that puts it all together. And the value is the fact that all those players are utilizing your technology. Okay, So you have the delivery agents who have your delivery app on their mobile phone. You've, you've got the third-party logistics players who are using your hub management system on their, on the, in their businesses. So that's how you create the, the real value. And that's why we're concentrating there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So your data is becoming increasingly valuable and important as well, which for me is a great segue to another question about Jumia's next steps for scaling and growth. Um, is it about more regional expansion or broader, a broader scope of goods and services for the markets where you already are?
0: Yeah, it's, the, it's more the second because... All said and done, uh, we are the largest e-commerce platform on the continent. But you're also in a continent where e-commerce and I would say all of modern trade is probably still within the ranks of two to five percent of total retail. Okay,
2: so huge, huge huge, upside.
0: Huge upside, yes. Uh Huge, huge upside. So before you start tinkering with uh, other kinds of categories and you know new verticals and so on just even that alone is, is a significant area to, to, to focus on. Yeah. And that's, and that's what our focus is. And and I think the other thing we are focusing on as well is, is really the shift um, that uh, consumers have made from using e-commerce coming to Jumia to buy the electronics. They wanted to buy products of high value because they could get it at a good price on Jumia and they could get, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the uh, quality assurance and, and, um, and all of that to the everyday products so people want to buy food people want to buy you know uh, essential items uh, home cleaning agents beauty beauty and perfumes consumables consumables basically that's a huge shift and that that's where we are also deepening our presence in yeah
1: so I want to I, I go to your, the competitive landscape in a second, but I want to pause and talk about consumables because I mean, one of the things that makes consumables possible here in the United States is that you can get it tomorrow, right? You can get your vegetables, they're still fresh, they're maybe mm-hmm. even cold packed, right? You, you need a toilet roll, you need cleaning products, whatever it is. Is that a big deal? Is that important to your consumers that they get something really fast or it, it is, or, or not? Not yet.
0: Yeah, there's always a trade-off. Um, I think sometimes it's it's your, what's the right word? It's the consumer's living environment that flows into their expectations. Okay, so because in the states, right next to the corner, there's either a Kroger or there's a, a Target or there's a Wegmans or you know uh, uh, any other brand. Uh, you know, Harry Harry, sorry it's Harry Teeters, I'm trying to remember the name, that you can pop into and buy. So that flows into consumer expectations of, you know, when do I want it? I want it like in 10 minutes. Of course you can use Instacart as well and you you get the product very quickly. Um, In our environment, it's slightly different. Uh, Consumers are making trade-offs. And for them, it probably the pricing is more important Mm-hmm. Um, because consumers want the best pricing. They're fairly happy with convenience. Um, but we also seen some of those expectations of, I want it quick and fast uh, flowing into into consumers' um, expectations of, of how they want it delivered. But to a large extent for consumers, it's the convenience of buying it online and the price point. Right. That's very important. And we also invest in... In what we call, we have a program we call Phoenix program, and a Phoenix program basically tracks about almost 50,000 items that are essentials that consumers want to buy. So basic essentials or bestsellers on Jumia, so that at any point in time, we want a consumer to buy those items on Jumia and save money relative to if they bought it elsewhere. So price is still a big a big part of the, of the equation for our consumers.
1: mm mm-hmm so you think this consumables segment may be growing faster than than hard goods
0: oh we see we see it, we see it already on our platform last year we saw the that in terms of items sold in some of our markets uh, we we began to see things like uh, some countries i can't remember which countries it is but you know sugar peas uh, became top-selling items for uh, in those in those countries relative to what it used to be before, where it might have been an electronic product, a mobile phone or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and of course, in markets like Nigeria, where uh, you know you have uh, issues with power generation and access to power, the power bank to power your phone was a top-selling item in Nigeria last year. Uh, we, we 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 covered all of that in our e-commerce report. Uh, mm-hmm. e-commerce index report, which we published about two or three weeks ago.
1: So I got the perfect question here for you that, that just follows on this. As part of your impact goals, do you does Jumia have any special role in supporting or facilitating local manufacturing in the countries where you operate?
0: We work very closely with brands. So we have uh, several brands that are listed on Jumia. And um, we see an increasing interest from brands to be on Jumia for many reasons. Uh, One being, of course, um, that it gives an opportunity for them to go direct to the consumer through Jumia as a platform. Two, it gives them very useful consumer insight. And a lot of that consumer insight is in terms of packaging, in terms of uh, product specifications. All of that is useful for a manufacturer, in in development and product development and production, so yes, I mean the answer is yes. Uh, local manufacturers find um, being on Jumia extremely useful for 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 their planning and and um, demand um, demand planning and, and production. Yeah.
1: Let's uh, let's pivot a little bit to the competitive landscape. Who are your competitors? Is it Kong.com or Lot, you know, other e-commerce companies that are in the continent? Or is Amazon a threat from afar?
0: I think when, when you look at it at the end of the day, uh, competition is, is more the, the informal market, right? Because all of that put together, you've just talked about whether it is Konga or Take Lot or any other platform or modern uh, brick-and-mortar retail and so on and so forth. All of that, like I said earlier, is just 2 to 5% max. Yeah. So <laughs> the real uh, competition is the, info, is the informal market. And, and uh, we are every day working to bring more and more sellers through the, uh, to the platform and bring more brands to the platform, uh, excite more consumers. We're, we're currently having our Black Friday uh, campaign on. And it usually is a very exciting period for consumers.
1: I had no idea that existed on your platform. Oh, that's we were nor- the first
0: to launch it in uh, Africa in 2014.
1: <laughs> Around here, that's like that's when I try to go for a hike in the woods because it's too mad <laughs> everywhere else. Um, but let Let me ask a bit more about you know where where does Jamia Jum- look for its you know its its vision? Do you look more to the Easts, uh, you know, Chinese e e commerce um, like? Taobao or JD or Douyin, or do you look more to Western models um, as you think through your growth strategy?
0: Um, I would say, honestly, we look more at our consumers uh, than anything else. I mean, it doesn't mean that we don't have parallels with uh, other markets. Sure, when you look at it from the basic e-commerce model, I would say we are much closer to the Asian uh, Alibaba model because we're more Mm -hmm. of a marketplace. Okay. And, but then there are structural differences between Africa and, and China. Uh, some of the infrastructural developments, uh, even things like uh, you know having a national postal system and driving down the cost of postal services. Some of those things which uh, Taobao, for example, leapfrogged in, in, in developing uh, in China, we don't have those in Africa. So mm-hmm. we look more at our consumers, I would say, in terms of what are the expectations, what are their needs, uh, what's evolving for them in the market was critical uh, than anything else. But yes, like I said, in terms of parallels of the basic e-commerce model itself, yes, pretty similar to um, um, to the Alibaba uh, mm-hmm.
1: Kind of model. Yeah. So, I mean, the other thing, I mean, Ali Bob is doing this a bit now, but I'm also thinking about this rise of social commerce. So yeah. TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook have become major marketplaces and they connect brands you know, directly to the consumers. They have so-called influencers as brand ambassadors. Yeah. Um, is this a threat to Jamia's business model? Is this a direction that you want to go? Well, how do you view social commerce?
0: We view social commerce as complementary uh, to, to some respects in the sense that, I mean, there's a lot of uh, social commerce on WhatsApp and uh, Instagram, like you mentioned, but it's also exposed um, some of the challenges of social commerce uh, in terms of protection of consumers. Sometimes you, you order something and it doesn't get delivered and you don't have a system whereby um, you can trust in um in the returns process, you can test them in quality assurance and, and so on. Every time we pull our consumers, they tell us that one of the things they really, really love on Jumia is they don't want to deal with a the seller. They don't care who the seller is. Okay. I mean, that, and that's, I'm speaking figuratively. The person they have a relationship with is Jumia. So if something goes wrong, they want to know that it's Jumia they're dealing with. Uh, we we always talk about the fact that when you're ordering online, that many things we provide, uh, the items probably being QC'd, you can see the seller score, so you can make decisions between multiple options, which seller to go with, uh, payments and all of that. So there's a whole lot that's riding on just completing a purchase online that consumers like the option of having someone, uh, you know, the intermediary, the platform that is taking some of those responsibilities for them. Yeah.
1: Let's talk about, sorry, that
0: case is still there. I mean, that case Mm -hmm. is is still a valid uh, value proposition for consumers.
1: So let's talk about trust. I'm, you know, I'm a frequent user of Amazon and eBay, and I've been ripped off many times. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, there are recourse there is recourse, but, but, yeah. yeah, but they're you know slow and unsatisfactory. How do, how is this going on your platform? Is oh, there a we, lot we, of problems?
0: We have, I mean, for any marketplace, of course, you would have um, uh, um, issues sometimes with sellers and so on and so forth. But like you mentioned, we do have recourse mechanisms. Uh, we have penalties. We have uh, we score sellers by many things, by speed of delivery, by the quality of the item, by the return rate of the items that they sell on the platform. So many things are built into it. And of course, we have certain items which must be QC'd. Uh, We have uh, manufacturer warranties. Uh, We offer everything that you can think of from a recourse perspective. And for some of our consumers also, depending on the type of item and the specific consumer's behavior on our platform, sometimes a consumer wants to return something and we refund immediately even before the item is retrieved. Okay, so there there are many things we've built into uh, creating an environment that consumers can trust and feel comfortable um, uh, to, to shop online, yeah.
1: There's a question here from an anonymous attendee. Can you explain why, as an Africa-focused, Nigerian-led company, uh, Jumia decided to set up its headquarters in Berlin, an IPO in IPO on the New York Stock Exchange? Why did you choose those locations instead of, for example, Nigeria?
0: Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Uh, don't forget that um, in terms of registration, we had always been uh, historically registered in Berlin. Uh, Just because, of course, our first uh, founders and and funders, rather, uh, was um, a German company. And we retained that over time. Okay, so we haven't changed that. Um, Of course, uh, people ask, I remember people have asked this question, you know, why New York? Um, Because when you're going through an IPO process, when you're... um, trying to establish funding for long-term growth of the company. You're also looking for an environment that will not only provide you with capital, but an environment where the investing uh, public, uh, to a large extent, understand the business model, are familiar with that business model because other companies of the same business model have gone through that that environment to to seek uh, uh, capital, right? So that's very important. Um, It would have been very new uh, in an African environment. Maybe sometime in the future, we could consider um, also listing in an African environment. But at that time, it was very important that um, when you considered London, you considered New York and other um, capital environments, that New York investing market had a very deep um, experience with e-commerce. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly.
1: Thank you. So another question here, um, this question, this person is wondering, does Jamia plan on creating any in-house products uh, considering the relative competitive advantage in labor cost in, in many African countries?
0: Um, Albert, I can only see at the moment is not um, uh, one of our key areas of focus. Our key areas of focus right now is actually, like I said, you know, deepening our presence in the markets that we're currently in. And uh, there's still quite a lot of, I would say, potential in terms of assortment uh, in, in, in food and basic consumables, consumables that consumers want. So, you know, we would be partnering more with sellers and, and brands, uh, you know, to bring more of that assortment to consumers.
1: I, I mean, that makes sense to me because I think you also have, in 11 countries, you have 11 sets of consumer preferences and cultural yeah. preferences. It's not like Amazon making batteries, you know, cheap batteries. It's it doesn't quite look like that. Um, another question here: What is the hardest thing about serving the African market?
0: I would say the the hardest thing was um, gaining the trust of consumers from the beginning. Okay, I still remember that. So um, that was the hardest thing, um, and we, as you. Recall, we 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 offered uh, and we still offer to some extent cash on delivery as one of the ways to gain consumer trust. Yes, we invest, invested a lot in offline engagement. We have a Jforce agent network, uh, also to educate consumers and win their trust on on the fact that look, if you order it online, it's going to be safe. Um, your your money isn't going anywhere, um, and you know jumia has the systems and and policies in place to handle any problem that you have so that's that was number one the second one uh, was um also convincing sellers of a marketplace model i mean they've been used for decades to retail retail so you come to me you pay for it i give it to you and that's it we're done right but here's a marketplace model that i say list the products and i'll pay you as you sell that's a completely different mindset. So th- those were, <laughs> I would say, the, the the tougher areas. But over time, we built that trust also on the seller side. And now we have a very vibrant marketplace. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's a big one, right? So yeah. in talking to fintech players in Nigeria, the number one problem they're solving is working capital. Mm. And somebody might need $300 to restock their inventory tomorrow. And yeah. they actually need that money tomorrow. And they're going to sell those goods the day after tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And no bank is interested in that business. Right. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, that has been I think that's a game changer. Right. Because you can never grow if you can never really fund finance your inventory. Yeah. Um, So there was a question here about to what extent do you believe Jamia will accelerate development in Africa? I can imagine a couple of pathways for that to happen, but I'd like to hear what you think.
0: I mean, it's already contributing to development on the continent. Uh, There was a BCG report that talked about the fact that, look, you know, marketplaces like Jumia by 2025 could be contributing almost 3 million jobs on the continent. So uh, in terms of you're talking about jobs, that's one. Number two, you're you're talking about formalizing informal uh, retail, like you mentioned, uh, you're also you also re- recognize as another area, which is the cross-border trade within Africa itself. Um, so those are many pathways and and many areas in which uh, e-commerce uh, and companies like Jumia can make significant um, uh, contribution to to the continent. Yeah.
1: so Julia, with with our little bit of time left, I want to make another pivot. and <laughs> I have some questions I' w- been thinking about um, for our audience. And one is kind of a general question. What does the entrepreneurial ecosystem look like in, in Lagos right now where you're based? If you were a young entrepreneur from Nigeria interested in pursuing, you know, scalable, technology-driven innovation, mm. what sorts of resources are available when it comes to advice and funding?
0: There are many hubs uh, I can certainly talk about. Uh, and I'm not holding brief for any particular hub, but I, I know CC Hub is one of them in Lagos. Um, there are a couple of other hubs as well and networks where uh, young, especially, particularly young tech entrepreneurs, um, can find resources, information, uh, and a networking environment where they can you know, meet with funders, they can meet with um, um, fellow tech techpreneurs, as we call them, to, to exchange ideas and, 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 um, and grow their business. So quite a number of them exist in, in Lagos. I just remember CC Hub um, mm-hmm. that comes to mind readily.
1: What about, for, do you have some advice for entrepreneurs who are not from Africa, but might be interested in exploring the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Africa? Where where would they start? Should they get to know what's going on in a particular city? Are there re- regional convenings, networks that they should tap into?
0: I'm yeah, thinking I mean, here about,
1: you know, grad students coming out of school, oh yeah,
0: yeah, excited
1: sure. about the opportunities on the continent and don't know how to get, how to dip their toe in the water.
0: Yeah. It, it, I mean, first things is, is decide where, where do you want to pitch a tent? And they've, I mean, I can talk about so many uh, areas. I mean, there's agriculture is a big one. Ag tech is a big one that's evolving. Um, education is another one. And, and of course healthcare. So um, this one of the big, big areas in my view is, is is healthcare, and it's really about how do we make more efficient use of the healthcare assets we have uh, on the continent. So any any use of technology that frees up uh, doctors' time and uses their time more efficiently, connects people to primary healthcare providers, uh, you know, uses data to, to help the, the doctors in in making decisions. Those things, um, I think, are big areas for, for development on, on the continent.
1: I mean, what's fa- well, I love all three of those examples because they essentially they've turned last mile delivery on its head. Yeah. Right? I'm yeah. old enough that I remember when we were, you know, World Bank and African Development Bank would put all this money into creating physical infrastructure to get teachers from here to over there, right? and just like nobody you know and, and then i years ago i lived in indonesia and if you wanted a landline for your phone you waited 4 years to get the landline installed mm-hmm. nobody nobody has a landline who cares right so yeah. Yeah. you know now not not everything can be done remotely but i am struck by how much of a disruption it is to do last mile delivery of so many services digitally so yeah. i think i i'm totally on the same page as you uh, i have another this is quite a technical question but i i appreciate this one in it, and it's about Delivery and geolocation, um, you know, I guess your delivery systems also rely on third-party technology, and does that limit what you can do with your geolocation data? Uh, the, the user, the this person asked, does geoconnectivity feels like a substantial factor for bringing Africa's domestic economy into the modern age? Can you see Jumia monetizing geolocation data uh, more as a public service, you know, funded by the government?
0: I mean, geolocation data is great, but this is an environment where we also build solutions around the fact that some consumers just don't have access. They are not covered by postcodes and and those kinds of information that make geolocation easy to track, right? So we have uh, pickup stations and we have... um, we have delivery agents who are more or less knowledgeable about specific villages and localities where consumers live. You know how it is. You know who lives behind who, uh, even if there's no formal postal code uh, to deliver there. Yeah. So uh, let's, we have a full round customized solution for the African environment. Maybe in the future, like you said, of course, when there's broad uh, coverage across all locations with uh, uh, all the right codes and so on. Yes, we could consider other all all the areas of investment.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm going to go back to our listeners because there's a very interesting question here for you. Um, I'm just going to read it verbatim. When do you see an inflection point for your business in terms of consumer adoption? Jumia has spent billions of dollars, but there are only 7 million MAUs on the platform. I don't actually know what an MAU is, so maybe <laughs> you can tell me what that is.
0: Yeah. And I may use monthly active users. Um, okay. So, I mean, um, people think about inflection points, but we, we just say to ourselves, look, there's, there's a huge, huge opportunity in the market. So, um, I, I don't predict what an inflection point will be, but, um, All I know is that every day that we are increasing the number of users we have on our platform, we're increasing the assortment that we have, we're increasing the number of sellers, bringing more brands, creating excitement, providing products and at the right prices for consumers. That is all part of the work um, that needs to be done. And that's what our focus will be for the foreseeable future.